I do hope uh, everyone had a good Thanksgiving holiday, and I hope you thank God, <laughs> because He is the one who deserves your thanks. Interestingly, this entire series through the book of Hebrews should be taking your gratitude to a deeper level. Recently, we've talked about a better hope, a better priesthood, a better covenant, basically a better way to know God. We who have lived on this side of the cross have so much to thank God for. Yes, even more than those who believed in God before the cross, because Jesus really did make a better way. This week we come to the subject of a better blood. And while I'm betting many of us had a chance to share some gratitude this last week, uh, maybe even around the table, as my family does, I doubt that any of us mentioned being thankful for the blood of Jesus before dinner. Right? It, just, it just sounds weird. Uh, well, maybe it won't sound so weird after you've heard the message this morning. We've jumped around a little. But believe it or not, we have actually covered the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. We've at least touched on everything up to our jumping off point today, which is verse 11 of chapter 9. Now, particularly today, some of you may experience the downside of the fact that I preach in series. There are many important benefits to doing so, but the drawback is that if you haven't been here for the first 10 sermons, uh, especially when we get to heavy passages of Scripture like these, you may find yourself a little lost. Unfortunately, there's no way I can explain again everything that we've covered to this point. Um, that's in, you know, probably eight hours of preaching. Uh, so please try to bear with me and listen for what's most important, most important, and that is what God would say to your heart this morning. Uh, we're starting chapter 9, verse 11 from the book of Hebrews, and this will be a long passage. So Please follow along on the screen or in your Bible. I'm using the New American Standard Version. Again, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, subject of last week, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those eagerly awaiting him. 
And now into chapter 10, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. And who believes that I'll be able to explain all of that in the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes? Hopefully nobody, because I am not able to do that. On the other hand, uh, we've actually covered several of those passages here and there throughout the series already. Uh, And, you know, for the last several months, I would venture to say that if you knew nothing about any of this before the start of our series you know a lot more about it now if you've been listening. At any rate, what I'm going to do today, rather than trying to meticulously walk through all of this, is to focus on the major theme that runs through this passage, and that theme is the blood. Once again, the writer of Hebrews compares the old way with the new way, or in this case, the old blood with the new blood. The old blood was that of sacrificial animals, and the new blood is the blood of Christ. Guess which one is better? The blood of Jesus is better than the blood of all the previous sacrifices combined because all of the sacrifices before Christ had absolutely no power in themselves. The only real effect of the blood of the previous sacrifices was in foreshadowing the blood Jesus would be shedding in the future. By the way, God routinely brings future realities into the present. I'm going to say that again. God routinely brings future realities into the present. This is how you can be chosen, yet also need to choose to accept Christ. And this is how you can still be living here while the Bible says you are already a citizen of heaven. But as it relates to the blood of the previous sacrifices, this is how they mattered The blood of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs mattered because in his timelessness, God somehow brought the future effect of the blood of Christ into the faith and practice of the obedient sacrifices of the earlier Hebrew people. This is how they were saved. In the same way that we are saved, by faith in Christ and his saving work, the essence of which involved shedding his blood on the cross. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So drawing from this passage, there are two things we need to understand about blood in the Bible. And then there's something we need to do with those understandings. First of all, we need to understand the point of the shed blood 
of animals. You need to understand the point of shed blood of animals. Look back again at verses 18 through 22. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And you might ask, but why? Why blood? Why would shed blood work in terms of God forgiving sin? Why did God decide that this would work? I would tell you it is because of the future blood of Jesus, which ultimately paid the penalty for all of the sin of all of mankind from all of history. Sound like universalism? No. Because this gift of grace must also be received by faith in order to be made effective for any individual. Forgiveness is available to all, but it is not received by all. To answer the question, the blood of Jesus who was to come later made the blood of the sacrifices effective inasmuch as they were offered in faith and obedience. Still, without their future fulfillment in Christ, they were worthless. That's why in this passage it almost sounds like one minute he's saying they were worth something and one minute he's saying they were worth nothing. They were only worth anything in what Christ was going to do. And at least in a temporal sense, they had no effect until he died. More on that later. Now, let's go back to the beginning. In fact, the Jewish sacrificial system finds its roots at the very beginning. An animal was apparently sacrificed to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. Though animals weren't yet being killed by man in that original paradise, God apparently killed one to provide clothing, which was needed because sin had brought them shame. And then, even before the first generation was gone, Cain and Abel sacrificed to God, with Abel's animal sacrifice being the one that was acceptable, partly because it involved the shedding of blood. Noah made such sacrifices to God as well, and so forth. However, the ins and outs of sacrificial worship were not codified until the time of Moses, through the giving of the law and the establishment of the priests and the tabernacle, which later became the temple, where these sacrifices were to be made in a very specific manner. And so, when the writer of Hebrews says that even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, he is speaking of the old covenant, which we discussed last week, whether specifically the Mosaic covenant or, on a larger scale, all of those covenants preceding the new covenant in Christ. But regardless, the point of these verses is that the shedding of blood has always been a requirement when it comes to any attempt by sinful man to relate to a holy God. The shedding of blood has consistently been required whether we're talking about the Old or the New Covenant, as in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness with God. But why? One word, justice. A price must be paid for sin. The price of sin is death. And you ask, why can't God just let it go? The reason is that God, by definition, is not able to be unjust any more than He is able to cease to be God. We should be thankful for the justice of God because if He were not just, we could not count on God to do anything at all. Without His justice, we could not count on our salvation. We could not count on anything. Nothing would be certain. His grace would not be certain without justice. It is because of the justice of God that there has always been a price for sin, and that price has always ultimately been shed blood in death. Because, as he explains in the book of Leviticus, the life is in the blood. But before I dive any deeper on that, there is something else that is very important to notice here. When the inspired author says that forgiveness comes through the shedding of blood, is he saying that the blood of sacrificial animals brought forgiveness to those who participated in the sacrifices? Is that what he means? The short answer is no. We can be sure that this is not what he means because of what is written in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Let's look at it. He writes, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder 
of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This brings up an even more interesting point, which is this. God does not forgive us unless our sins have been taken away. He cannot simply overlook them because of His justice. He cannot call what is evil good. No, our sins must be removed. God does not simply look the other way at all. No, instead, something must be done to cleanse us, to make us holy. He cannot consider us holy if we have not been made holy by the removal of our sins. We know this from the entirety of Scripture. So again, from verse 3, if the blood of animals does not take away sins, which means it cannot bring forgiveness, then what does it do? As I've already indicated, we must remember that all of the old covenant, all of it, was only a shadow of things to come. And so, its power was derived from the substance which cast the shadow, that being what was to happen in the future, not what was happening in the moment of the sacrifice. We've actually seen this over and over again in the book of Hebrews, that the old covenant, and specifically the, the sacrificial system, did not have power in itself, but it had power in as much as it caused the people to look forward in faith to the substantive Savior who was promised. There was power in what they were doing only because Christ would eventually come and because eventually He would be sacrificed for their sin and our sin. His blood was shed. And because of this, the blood of animals offered in forward-looking faith had some spiritual effect. But again, only in Christ. This is what is meant in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, where it says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. The one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated, not really put into effect, without blood. This can be confusing, but remember from last week that the word testament is synonymous with the word covenant in Scripture. That being the case, what if we subbed in the word testament for the word covenant in these verses? So the inspired author would say, for where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it before it's going to be in force. What is a last will and testament? It is a covenant, that being certain written promises that are not to be kept until what? until the one making those promises is dead, right? So the writer of Hebrews is making a bit of play, a play on words here, referring to the fact that the promises of God were, were not fully applied until after Jesus died, He who was God in the flesh. See, when God died, His covenant, His testament, His previous promise was put into force. The former system had been a shadow, incomplete and unfinished, right up until the point when Jesus died. Remember the temple veil split, just as an exclamation point. At that point, the old covenant was completely validated, fulfilled, or as it also says in our text, put into force. But if Jesus had never died on the cross, that old sacrificial system would have proven to be utterly useless all along, whether in the present or the future. This is what the author means in verse 17 when he writes, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead. When he says that, he has the maker of the covenant in mind, that being God, who became a man just so that he could bleed and die, thus validating the purpose of the old blood with the power of the new blood. Is this making sense? At least some of you. <laughs> it's pretty deep stuff. But in case, just in case, in case it's not resonating with somebody, at least understand that the blood of sacrificial animals never brought forgiveness to a single soul. But once more, what then was their purpose? To sum it all up, look at chapter 10, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. 
Here we see it plainly stated that the animal sacrifices and their shed blood in particular was to remind the people of the price of their sin, which if you recall from Genesis chapter 2 is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so through these prescribed worship practices of the old covenant involving the shed blood of animals, the people were to experience sorrow as they were reminded of the loss of life demanded by their sinfulness and thereby to yearn for the Savior who would come to permanently free them from that sin and its consequences, the worst of those being death. But let's go one step further into the why in asking this question. Why did the shed blood of animals cause the people, cause the people to feel sorrow and desperation over their sin? Why did it remind them of their sin in that kind of a powerful way? Why would killing animals have been that kind of a painful reminder. As I've mentioned before, I am a hunter. Believe it or not, there was a day, even in my lifetime, when being a hunter was not controversial in any way. Before the brainwashing of a generation. And yes, I was alive before PETA (laughs) and other similar groups existed. I am old, which means I know what it was like before. Back to the point, I have killed animals with guns. I have killed animals with a bow and arrow. They bled, they died, I cleaned out their guts. I skinned them, I cut them into pieces, I cooked them, and we ate them. I wonder. If anyone here grew up on some kind of farm where most of your food didn't come from the store, anybody? A few. It's become fairly rare. But if anyone was raised on a farm, you can tell us what happened when the pig was fat enough (laughs) or when you wanted fried chicken for Sunday dinner. Well, somebody had to actually kill the pig or the chicken to feed the family, right? I mean, it wasn't like just dead already, (laughs) right? The animal wasn't all cut up and packaged in plastic waiting on a shelf uh, in the barn. (laughs) So what if no one would have had the stomach in the family for killing the animal? What if everyone in the family had felt wrong about killing an animal. Back in the day, they didn't have hummus, folks. <laughs> Tofu was not growing in the garden. They didn't eat, offer protein-enriched yogurt or shakes on the farm. There simply wasn't any way to have enough vegetables all year long in order to provide for a family, as if that thought ever crossed anyone's mind. The fact is that someone had to kill in order for the family to eat. If no one had killed, the family would have been very unhealthy at the least and likely would have starved for lack of protein. They killed to eat and they ate to live. On a much more serious note, a few of you men have fought in wars. Some of you know what it is like to see your friends bleed out and die. A few of you know what it means to kill or be killed. By experience, you have an understanding about the essence of life that most of us do not have. You comprehend blood in a different way. You know with a profound certainty that the life is in the blood. But many of you, most of you probably, have never even witnessed the killing of an animal. Listen, it is moral to kill a person in self-defense or to defend the innocent, and it is moral to kill an animal for food. These things are also biblically supported, but my point today is not about morality. My point is that most people in these modern times have difficulty with things like the Jewish sacrificial system leading to the blood-soaked cross of Christ because they simply do not have even any kind of lesser experience in order to understand it. Some of you even close your minds to the whole thing and won't let yourself picture what it means for an animal like a lamb to die. Contrast this with the people of Jesus, the Jews, 
When they heard from the author of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. They understood this at a whole other level. They had seen more bloodshed probably than all of us combined. It was part of their regular worship. And who slaughtered the animals for the sacrificial system, by the way? Before Jesus came, who killed and slaughtered the animals for worship? The priests did. These holy men who were set apart by God did the killing. They shed the blood, and make no mistake, it was God who commanded them to do so. Additionally, they were commanded to do certain specific things with the blood, just so that the cost and the necessity of it was clear to the people, sprinkling blood here and there and touching certain things with blood, treating the blood with a certain reverence because it was life. Therefore, in a much more poignant way than we do, they understood that death, that death is the price of our sin. And see, that was precisely the point. Yahweh God wanted them to feel the price of sin in their guts, to feel it emotionally. Do you understand? Can you imagine if I were to kill a lamb up here before you this morning? Can you imagine if we had an altar and a lamb strapped down to it? And if I had a knife, I honestly don't think I could do it. Nor would I, to be clear. But that's exactly what God called spiritual leaders to do back when they were under the old covenant. Maybe next Thanksgiving I should thank God that I don't have to kill lambs. And why don't I? Because of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was killed on a cross to take away the sin of the world. Now, I've spent a lot of time on this point today, but it's a huge theme in the book of Hebrews, so I wanted to make sure you all understand that the point of the shed blood of animals was to remind the people of their sin and to turn their eyes forward to the forgiveness that would only truly come through the shed blood of Christ. That's the first thing we need to understand from this text. Secondly, we need to understand what is better about the shed blood of Christ. We've already touched on this, but look at chapter 10, verse 8 and following. The writer continues, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, this is Jesus, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, all that killing I was just describing, in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, the author is going back to the Old Testament for support again, and he's pointing out that many times God let the people know that their sacrifices were not all that pleasing to him. Isaiah chapter 1 comes to mind, there are others. He was sick of it. Stop the trampling of my courts, he said at one point. Why was he sick? Because A, they were incomplete. It, 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 was, it was partial. It was a shadow. And then, as we've said, B, we know from other passages that the people were going on in their sin in spite of their religious activities, which made those sacrifices offensive rather than effective. But then in verse 9, the inspired author turns a corner and quotes Jesus saying, Behold, I have come to do your will. We're going to change everything. That's what he's saying. The contextual implication is that God was ready to move on from these ineffective sacrifices, and now it was time for Jesus to really take care of business, to finally do the thing that had made any of this matter in the first place. And what did Jesus do? It says He took away the first in order to establish the second. As we discussed last week, the old covenant is now obsolete because of Christ. The writer of Hebrews used that word. The old system has been taken away, swallowed up in the new. Why? Because as we just read from verse 10, by His work, and only by His work, the work of Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of His body once for all. Let's not miss this phrase, once for all, at the end of verse 10 from chapter 10. There it is in black and white. 
Underline it in your Bible. Jesus offered his body. Jesus offered his body once and for all. Jesus died for the whole world, as he put it in John 3. In other words, forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ is offered to all. He died for everyone. The question is whether or not you will receive his gift by faith or will you let his offering go to waste on your account. Some of you are aware that this is an area of great theological debate. But why does our theological position on this matter? I don't have time to tell you in detail, but it generally comes down to how you look at other individuals. Either as being someone for whom Christ died, or someone, perhaps, who never had a chance. And you say, well, I don't know exactly who is who, so I just assume anyone I meet could be saved. There's still a difference. I see a person who I know Jesus died for. You see a person who maybe, actually, he didn't die for at all. Big difference. And now I'll get emails about how I have supposedly misrepresented somebody else's theological system, but I don't think I misrepresented a thing. And if you say, well, that's not what I mean by so-called limited atonement, I will say, great, and I'm so glad that you don't mean that. But this is exactly what many people mean by it, I can assure you, that Jesus only died for some. So while I'm here, do you, know, do you want to know where I stand on the whole Calvinism thing? Well, you can call me a semi-Calvinistic non-Calvinist, I suppose, <laughs> if you just had to put me in a box. And someone is now thinking, oh, he's a four-point. He's a four-point. I bet he's a four-pointer, maybe a three-pointer. Okay, are we talking about Calvinists or bucks right now? I need to know if I can shoot or not. That's a joke. But I mean, how silly is that? A biblical theology cannot be put into five points and ten words. Anything so cut and dried is dubious from the start. If you ask me, in truth, I have issues with the rough edges of several of the five points, depending on how they're interpreted. But right now, I want to tell you that I fully believe that Jesus died for the whole world, and His gift is applied to those who trust in Him by grace through faith. Seven or eight of you know what I'm talking about right now, and the rest of you are probably better off not knowing, except that I do hope you will consider the blood of Christ as being available to every single person in the whole world. He died once for all. Back to the larger point. It seems pretty obvious that the salvation earned by the shed blood of Christ is better than what, we could, what could be accomplished by the blood of sacrificial animals. Well, let's look at this a little bit more. What exactly was better about the blood of Jesus better than the animals, and also better than any other human being who ever lived. What is better about Christ's blood? Look back at chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. He writes, For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. That's basically a reference to the things they had to do to even be able to enter the temple, basically. How much more will the blood of Christ's who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, what's better about the blood of Jesus? Well, unlike any other human being to ever live, the blood of Jesus is without blemish. Do you see that there? It's right there in verse 14. It's without blemish. See, besides Jesus, the rest of us share the same blood, genetically speaking, and our blood is absolutely blemished. Our blood comes from our progenitors, which, if you go far enough back, comes down to one man and one woman, people who sinned. But the blood of Jesus did not come from the same place as ours. 
God started over with Jesus, which is why He's sometimes referred to as the second Adam. Because it was free, His blood was free of the curse of sin. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. He did not have the blemished blood of Adam and Eve in His veins. Now, look at the last part of verse 15 once more. Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The life is in the blood. And so, by saying a death has taken place there, he also points to the shedding of Christ's blood. And through this better blood, not only are we redeemed from our transgressions, but the old way of the first covenant involving the old blood of animals is also redeemed. The point is that whether you lived under the methodologies of the old covenant or came into life under the new covenant, you are actually saved in the same way through receiving the gift of eternal salvation earned for you by the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. The summary here might be this. The shed blood of Jesus redeems all who have been called. As it says, those who have been called may receive the promise. And no, I'm not skipping over that. Once more, I do believe this redemption is available to all. But in reality, God only winds up redeeming the called, which includes those who were called before Christ came. And what does it mean to be called in this context? All who have been called will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, salvation, heaven, through the redemption earned by His death. Who are the called? Short answer, those who will be saved. (laughs) Those who are foreknown and therefore predestined are also those who are called, as is indicated in Romans chapter 8. And we could spend a lot of time here and there are some nuances and some difference of opinions in the way we should say these things. But let me just get practical instead and say this. When God calls, you know it. When God says, hey you, what are you waiting for? My son died so you could have eternal life. Receive him by faith today. You know it when God calls. When God calls you to be saved, you know. So, have you ever sensed that call in your life? It's a question I often ask in other countries, um, walking down dirt streets, places like Nicaragua. Have you ever felt like God was calling to you, wanting you to be saved, to accept His Son, tears almost every time. Have you ever been moved to receive Christ as your Savior? Did you put it off? Did you get a little bit hard-hearted by life in between? Will you put it off again today? What are you waiting for? Jesus was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He had not sinned, nor had He inherited the curse of sin, which comes from Adam. The blood of Jesus was not tainted like ours, and since He did not need to die for Himself, He could die for us. The blood of Jesus was better than sacrificial animals because He was a man, and His blood was better than the rest of mankind because He was the Son of God. This is why Christ's blood and only His blood can truly wash away our sins. His blood is better. So first, we need to understand the point of the blood of animals. Second, we need to understand what is better about the blood of Christ. But always remember that understanding only is helpful in as much as it leads to application. So number three, we need to apply the power of the shed blood of Christ. Look at chapter 10, starting with verse 19. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Can I have an amen? I realize that these verses are written to those who are already believers, but regardless in these verses, we can see how one is saved in the first place. To be saved is to be forgiven and accepted by God and be restored into right relationship with Him. So when we see phrases like, enter the holy place and let us draw near, and through descriptions of the reasons they were able to do that, we wind up seeing what is required to be saved. So notice how it is that we enter the holy place, that is, the place where God is, verse 19. And then notice how it is that we draw near to God, verse 22. In both cases, we do it by the blood of Jesus. Drill down even further in verse 19 and verse 22, and we see that it is by faith in the blood of Jesus that we draw near to God. Verse 19 says straight out that we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And it says we do that how? We do it with confidence, that being a descriptive word for faith. That is to say that we confidently believe that the cross was enough for us to be forgiven. Verse 22 says it more plainly that we draw near to God in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, and then tacked on as the idea of our bodies being washed with pure water. Another couple potential interpretations regarding the pure water here, and nobody is sure what is meant. But it seems likely to be a reference to the outward practice of baptism. And even if you go back to the text before today's text, it talked about these outward things. Um, Which, to be clear, this baptism, if that's what it's referencing, only matters if the heart, that's for the body, the baptism is for the body, it only matters if the heart has been sprinkled by the blood. Not literally, but by faith, as it were, and the necessity of this faith in the blood of Christ is what is clear in both verse 19 and verse 22. What is clear is that the way to God is through the blood of Christ, and also that the way His blood is actually applied to you is through faith. So again, the power of salvation is in the shed blood, and that power is applied through your faith decision to receive it, even as you believe in God's plan of salvation for your soul. Belief, faith. It's how I like to say it's the key that unlocks the door of God's grace. I could show you many other verses on this, but we don't need any other verses when it's so clear right here in the text that we're studying. What's the takeaway? Maybe the most important truth here is an unspoken implication, which is this. It is possible to miss out on the better blood of Christ. Or to put it another way, it is possible to miss out on the benefits of what Jesus did for you on the cross. How? By not applying His blood to your life, or more precisely, by rejecting God's desire to apply it. Yes, to be clear, God is the one who will apply the blood. But without splitting hairs, the point is that He won't force this on you. He doesn't just dump it on you while you're looking the other way. He waits for you to receive what He is offering. And our text says, with confidence and with full assurance of faith. And once more, what is God offering to you? Well, can we just remember a few phrases from the text we studied today, limiting ourselves to the verses we read today. Here's what you get when you allow God to spiritually apply the blood of Christ to your life by faith. From chapters 9 and 10, verse 11 and chapter 9, we get the good things to come. Verse 12, eternal redemption. Oh, well, just that. Verse 13, the cleansing of the flesh. Verse 14, a cleansed conscience. Also verse 14, we, from the blood of Christ, we get the ability to faith in the blood of Christ. We get the ability to serve God. Verse 15, we get a new covenant. Also, verse 15, the promise of the eternal inheritance, basically heaven and all that's there. Verse 22, forgiveness. 
Verse 28, salvation without reference to sin. He's coming back not to deal with sin, but just to save. Chapter 10, verse 1, we, we get to be made perfect. Oh, that's, that's cool. Verse 10, sanctification through the offering of the body of Jesus. Verse 14, perfected for all time. Verse 16, a new covenant again. Verse 17, sins are, our sins are remembered no more. Verse 18, forgiveness again. Verse 19, confidence to enter the most holy place, to draw near to God. Verse 20, a new and living way. Verse 21, so great a high priest in Christ. Verse 22, full assurance. Verse 23, washed clean. And verse 24, we get God's promises. Thanks be to God for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's an interesting thing that God's Word takes us all the way to the blood, isn't it? I mean, couldn't we have just talked about the cross in general? Or can't we just say, Jesus died for me and be done with it? No. In fact, He Himself told us to remember Him by the blood, didn't He? Jesus even referred to a certain cup of juice as the blood of the new covenant. We shared in communion just a couple of weeks ago, and every time we do, especially as we drink the fruit of the vine, even through its color and liquid form, we remember the blood of Christ. I would go so far as to say that it is a biblical mandate that we never, ever stop remembering, that we make sure even that our children know and our grandchildren that our healing and our forgiveness and our peace with God comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Robert Lowry's hymn says it well. So let's try some interaction as I close. I'm going to sing some phrases, and your response is going to be the same every time, just to keep it simple. All you have to sing is this. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it has to be nothing. can't be nothing. That's, this is, no. You've got to do it in the spirit of it. That's your line. You got it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I'll do the rest and you can, I'll kind of signal and we'll get this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Last time. Nothing but the blood. Amen. There's still another old hymn called, Are You Washed in the Blood? And that's a great question, a really great question, because listen, either you are or you are not. How does that happen for any particular person? It happens when you believe. When you put your trust in Christ and what He did on the cross, If you haven't done that, now's your chance. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you knew from time and eternity that you would be coming to shed your blood on the cross to pay the price for our sin. 
to allow yourself to be killed so that we could live. And while I'm at it, thank you for rising again so that our life can be eternal in you. Lord, there may be someone here today who have never have really been cleansed. They've never, oh, how many other ways we try to do this. All the religious ceremony, we, we're still stuck in the old covenant in our own ways. We have our own things that we do, that we elevate in our minds as being capable of cleansing us of sin, maybe at least for a little while, just like what they had. But you've done it for us. You've already done it. Lord, I, I pray that those who are the called in this room would indeed respond to your call. That as you speak to a heart today and say, here's your chance. Receive my son. Receive what he did for you. Let me apply his blood. Let me wash you in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb today. That's what God is saying to someone here. Won't you just say yes? There are some things implied there. That means you understand that you have sin. You want to turn away from it. We call that repentance. Repent and believe, the Bible says many times, but other times it just says believe, and that is because... True faith is repentant faith. So can you turn today from whatever other ways that you've tried to be good enough, from whatever it was that you thought could make you okay with God and accept the only way that He said you can be forgiven. Faith in the blood of Jesus. Believe it, that He died for you and that it's enough. And He will save you. And He will cleanse you. And He will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, past, present, and future. And He will begin to teach you how to live that out during the remainder of your time here on this earth until He glorifies you and makes you perfect for heaven when He returns. Wouldn't you day, today be the day? What if the day was the day? Your birthday in Christ. Just say yes to God. Father, thank you for having it all figured out all along. And thank you that even as we try to understand you and understand your ways, it helps us to be humbled. As there's so many things about it that we really can't completely grasp. But we have faith in who you are and that your way is best. And our trust is in Jesus Christ and no other in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.